If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Today, it is September 20th of 2012, and our guest is Jeremy Frank, Ph.D. He's a harm reduction therapist in Philadelphia. Before we uh, start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is... HamsNetwork.org. We are a free of charge laylet support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to HamsNetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Dr. Jeremy Frank, is right here with us. We're going to bring him on board. Jeremy, how are you doing this afternoon? Very well, Ken. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you on the show. You know, I was reading a little bit about your background. You sent me some background by email, and I see that you uh, you uh, originally got involved in recovery via the 12-step program, and then uh, you uh, incorporated harm reduction into your practice. So uh, what what is it that made you decide to incorporate harm reduction into your practice? Well, early on I worked in a pretty traditional drug and alcohol rehab, intensive outpatient mostly, and the therapists there were traditional certified addiction counselors. Um, This was in Philadelphia. And there was a lot of dogma. There was one way of doing things that very much followed AA. But then in addition to that, it was insurance-based, and in many ways the insurance companies also followed a strict disease model and 12-step program. In fact, treatment plans were written up in such a way that one needed to get a sponsor, one needed to make a certain amount of AA meetings uh, per week, one needed to get phone numbers of other recovering people, and if the participants who had insurance and went to the rehab didn't follow that treatment plan, um, often their treatment was terminated. Um, Insurance wouldn't pay. Um, Similarly, if people relapsed, there was a three-strike policy. Um, this was about 15 years ago, and this was one particular rehab. I know not all rehabs were like that or are like that. Um, but uh, to me, that that didn't that didn't work. Well, um, I, I also found that a lot of the therapists um, who came from um, recovery programs a long time ago had um, similar dogmatic attitudes, so you would hear things like, take the cotton out of your ears, stick it in your mouth, you earned this seat, AA or the highway, Um, you're not ready for recovery, here's $10, go buy yourself a bottle, you know, come back when you're really ready, and um, it it scared a lot of people away. Yeah, I had that uh, very same experience uh, when I went through a traditional 12-step rehab, uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota, um, and um, 
they they were very quick to uh, kick people out for relapsing. Actually, they they, were, they had the one strike uh, program, and I remember that I came in and I admitted that over Christmas I had drank alcohol, and I was like told by my counselor, "You're not supposed to tell me that. You didn't get caught." <laughs> right. You're not supposed to tell the truth if you relapse because we've got to kick you out. And he said, "Well, because you tell the truth, I'm going to let you continue." But you know, that's that's you know, you can't. It's teaching people how to lie is one of the things it does. I remember working with a 17-year-old, and um, you know, since I was in graduate school, uh, they assigned me to work with him. Most people weren't receiving individual treatment, and. Um, he had smoked pot for the second time. I had probably seen him for about six weeks. And the policy was that we were supposed to terminate treatment. And at that time, I I decided that's what I needed to do. And, and I told him, and I remember uh, he, he became somewhat teary-eyed. And, um, you know, he obviously felt bad about it. And, you know, I said goodbye. And, I mean, till this day, I, obviously therapists have treatment blunders, but till this day, you know, I feel, you know, really bad about that. And um, that was an opportunity to discuss what was going on in his life. He's only 17. It's very hard for a 17-year-old to um, appreciate consequences um, from, you know, drug use. It was only marijuana, and he hadn't used that much at all. Um, so, so things are very different um, with my work today. I've also done a lot of work in the college population, and college students are going to do what they're going to do. I mean, even more so than adults presenting to a private practice. College students have a sense of invulnerability or invincibility, and mm-hmm. uh, they may or may not come back for treatment. So a lot of professionals in college counseling centers do harm reduction without really even appreciating that that's what they're doing. Uh, since you mentioned the college population, have you ever looked at the BASICS program that was developed by Alan Marlatt and some of his colleagues uh, at the uh, University of Washington? Sure, yeah, Parks and Marlatt. Um, that's been um, adopted fairly widely, you know, various versions of that in uh, higher education um, today. Um, and, uh, and uh, yeah, that's a, a pretty pretty effective um, program depending on on how it's done and who does it. Um, I think that a lot of times the people who are trained to do that are are not necessarily mental health professionals as well, and certainly not addiction experts. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's a pretty rational uh, pr- rational approach. You know, you're not going to stop every college student from ever taking a drink while they're in college, but uh, you can help them. You know, be a little more. Responsible and sensible about it, and uh, not uh, to get involved in so many risky situations as sometimes happens. Sure. And another approach that's used widely in colleges is um, social norming. And I don't, I don't know if you've had any uh, experts talk about that, but you know the idea is that um, we will imitate behavior. We're, we're social creatures. We want to do what other people do, even though we'd like to think we're independent and autonomous and self-reliant free thinkers. Um, we want to be like Mikey. I remember mm-hmm. the life commercial, you know, eat life because um, Mikey eats life. 
And um, so the idea is that people are drinking because uh, everybody else is drinking. And when you ask college students what percentage of people um, at this college do they think are getting drunk uh, regularly, um, they all tend to answer 75%, 80% um, in, the, in the high percentages. And the reality is much uh, less than that. You know, it's, it's about 50% or just under 50% that is binge drinking um, in college uh, nationally. But, but the perception is uh, that a lot more uh, drink because of the salience that, that drinking um, has. So, you know, you go into a party and you see people falling all over each other or the, the quarters or the ping pong ball or people saying, drink, drink, drink. Well, that's only 20% of the college students um, who drink three-fourths of all the alcohol nationally but they have a visibility uh, and a salience. And so everyone thinks everybody's drinking, but in reality, it tends to be under 50%. So what people are doing in higher education now is educating um, the student body and saying, hey, look, uh, and they, you know, they do it with cool posters and try not to use scare tactics. Um, look, most of the students at this college, uh, just under 50% are drinking four or fewer drinks when they choose to drink. Um, and... Uh, there's recent research that's showing that, that that's an effective um, approach as well. Well, since we're on the topic of uh, drinking on campus, I wanted to mention that HAMS has a subsidiary website. It's called collegedrinking.org. It's called Students for Safe Drinking. Uh, we also have a Facebook group with a, quite, a Facebook page with quite a few fans of it. So uh, if anyone wants to check out collegedrinking.org, we've got some tips about being more sensible and uh, you know how to deal with alcohol when you are in college so you don't get into too much trouble. That's great. Now, I'd like to uh, talk a little bit more about your background, which um, I don't know your background, so I'm just going to be asking blindly here. Um, but you said uh, you told me that you went through a traditional 12-step recovery. Did you go through a treatment program, or did you go through uh, AA without a treatment program? Yeah, so um, yeah, I'm, I'm clean and sober 21 years, and that's how I became interested in um, doing this work. Um, and I... Um, actually, I think the treatment approach that I use, which is a harm reduction approach, incorporates um, what's called as a, a stepped-up level of care approach. This is probably sort of obvious uh, to many people, but uh, Sobel and Sobel, who are researchers in alcoholism uh, at Rutgers, um, write fairly elegantly about it as uh, an approach for substance abuse in general. So you, you want to start out with something um, that is least restrictive. Most people want to do, you know, the easier, softer way. They want to do the simplest treatment, perhaps once a week, outpatient therapy. It's least costly, least intrusive, least drastic. You know, you don't just go away to a, a rehab. Um, and I can say more about that in terms of my treatment approach, but I learned that through my own personal experience because I knew very clearly on that I had trouble with cocaine, that I was spending way too much money, I was missing work, I was messing up relationships, I was up for two days straight and um, getting paranoid and having all kinds of minor psychotic symptoms as a result of my cocaine use. I had no interest in stopping alcohol use. I had no interest in 
um, discontinuing smoking marijuana, um, and I know that I needed help. So I went to a therapist. Um, my father happens to be a psychiatrist. He referred me to a colleague of his, and um, I started to learn about myself. I found therapy helpful. I was not yet ready to um, discontinue my cocaine use, um, and I relapsed a bunch of times. And every time I relapsed, I said to myself, um, if, I, if I can't do it on my own here with the help of the therapist, I'll, I'll add something to my treatment uh, regimen. So when I relapsed the first time, I started um, going to the therapist twice a week. Um, after I relapsed, you know, a, you know, a third time, I decided I'll tell my parents about it so that I'll feel the shame and guilt, and maybe that'll motivate me. I'll tell my friends about my problem. It helped me a little bit. Maybe lasted for about four weeks. I relapsed again, um, and uh, at some point, someone said, uh, "You know, how about going to this CA meeting, Cocaine Anonymous?" I absolutely didn't want to do that. Not interested in in God or higher power or spiritual spirituality, uh, and I, I never saw myself as someone who would do that, uh, but I, you know, I went anyway. I didn't feel like I could connect to the people in the meeting, but it wasn't so bad, but it wasn't for me. I said to myself, if I relapse again, I'll go, on, I'll go once a week to that meeting regularly. Of course, that's what I did, um, and at the meetings, they were telling me to go um, every day, um, and I said, if I relapse again, I'll start going more frequently, and and so on and so on, um, until I was actually going to meetings regularly. Um, and I, I never went to uh, drug and alcohol rehab. Um, somewhere along the line, it became clear to me that, for me, whenever I used substances, um, some small substance, a little bit, uh, smoked weed regularly, it would lead to me trying a benzodiazepine, having a few drinks, and then needing to go out and just do one line of cocaine, which would lead me to stay up two nights in a row back to square one. Um, so for me, I decided abstinence um, was necessary, and at that point I was going to meetings regularly and continued with therapy, and uh, that, that worked. Well, that's interesting. Um, in in relation to an earlier show that we did uh, with Amanda Ryman, we also talked about this a little bit with uh, Leanne Katakas when she was on. Um, a lot of people use cannabis substitution, and it helps them to actually get off the harder drugs like cocaine or heroin or alcohol. Alcohol is really a very hard drug when you come right down to it. Um, um, and uh, so your experience was quite different from that. Yeah, I mean, I um, I think that I tried that, and I I, I really believe everybody is different. Um, that's a reasonable approach, and um, it has to be a case-by-case -case basis. But we've been doing that for um, probably hundreds of years. Um, and maybe you know this, my understanding is that Heroin, heroin was introduced about 150 years ago to help people get off morphine. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, now we use methadone and suboxone to help people get off of heroin. And with the more widely accepted use of marijuana for 
other emotional issues and certainly physical issues, it seems not not so far off that it would make sense for some people um, to smoke weed instead. And so I have a, a lot of patients who um, who smoke pot to help them drink less. Uh, as you said, alcohol, especially when someone's physically dependent on it, uh, or using large quantities. Um, yeah, it's a hard drug. And uh, people don't get into fights at the bar, you know, from smoking pot. You know, you know hey, you look at my girlfriend. Oh, yeah, she's hot, isn't she? You laugh about it and move on. Um, so, so, but, but I, I don't think that as a harm reduction therapist, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, um, you know, why don't you introduce smoking marijuana to, you know, to help? Um, but I, I think there's a lot of people who do that, and that's, that's probably not so far off in the future. What are your thoughts about that? Well, for people who have uh, some particularly bad problems with alcohol, for example, fighting is one that you mentioned. Another is a cirrhosis of the liver. You just can't drink anymore. It's going to kill you very quickly. Or people who have severe withdrawal who go through DTs when they drink alcohol, if they can switch over to the marijuana, which won't damage the liver, doesn't cause the fights, doesn't cause DT with type withdrawal, that's certainly a big improvement if they make that switch. Yeah, and keeping harm reduction central, that that makes complete, complete sense. Um, so, yeah, it's not the solution for everyone, and in fact, there's some people like myself, uh, marijuana makes me very depressed immediately on smoking it. I haven't touched it in decades because it has that really negative effect. It doesn't. It's not the answer for everyone, but for some people, it might be the best solution. There was a New York Times article recently um, uh, by Mark Wolf um, in San Francisco, Pot for Parents. It was a very cute article about how he was prescribed medical marijuana um, and how he found himself so much more willing to get on the floor and play with his children. And um, it was very hard to argue that there was anything wrong with um, him using pot, not just for the medical issues that he was prescribed for, but to reduce stress and um, to help him be more creative and um, and more engaged uh, at, in his home life. And um, it's hard to understand, and it really makes you wonder how much individual difference plays a role in um, in people's reactions to drug use and the severity that their addiction can um, enter and, and also their recovery. I, too, am that way with pot. If I smoke pot, I, I feel... Uh, real generalized anxiety or, or, um, or more specific anxiety and, and depressive-like experiences, although that was my drug of choice for seven years uh, on, a, on a daily basis. Uh, most of the time it just calmed me down and it was something I did by myself, but if I was around others, um, I, would, I would feel uh, too anxious. Um, so I, I can understand um, I have had similar reactions to now, as long as we're mentioning different uh, types of drugs, um, there's kind of a double standard that, well, it still exists uh, 
uh, to some extent. But when we talk about nicotine and caffeine, and you know, nicotine is mind altering, it's mood altering, it's like highly addictive. But no one that smokes a cigarette is told that they've relapsed and they're not sober anymore. I don't actually understand that, and the jury still is out. I, I, in, in my view, nicotine appears to be a fairly hard substance, too, but um, no one comes to therapy um, saying they need to talk about their relationship with their parents and their trauma in their past, how angry they are with their partner, um, and that they believe that if they could figure that out, it would help them stop smoking cigarettes. And, and I'm not sure if that's because it, it truly is a different type of relationship that people have to their addiction with nicotine, um, or are we affected by societal and cultural norms to see nicotine use a certain way because it's so prevalent and um, you know, it's probably even so much money is made um, that maybe not intentionally there's some control of information and we don't see it that way. Um, and, and caffeine, uh, being a fairly current addict of uh, caffeine, um, I'm not I'm not so sure how how objective I can be <laughs> about that drug. I think that a lot of times what's helpful is to look at the consequences, um, and you know when we get stuck trying to understand what the impact of a certain substance is um, in in one's life, and that's what I what I try to do when anyone comes into the therapy office is to help them explore the role that, you know, their use plays in their life. And I find that a helpful uh, rubric, um, you know, with which to view the um, the consequences um, and that, that people are having and to help them understand, you know, why they might uh, use a particular substance. Um, and so it's the same with, with caffeine and and nicotine, it depends on what the consequences are. Nicotine is is perhaps the number one uh, cause of premature death in the United States. I think it's 400,000 or so cancer-related um, deaths. And what's, what's next is uh, eating habits, about 300,000. I think alcohol is, is more around 100,000. Um, but, but the consequences can be fairly severe. That with caffeine, it's much less. Um, clear to see what consequences there are. And then because denial is a main component of addiction, oftentimes, you know, we don't want to see what the consequences are in our lives or we can't see what the the consequences are in our lives. Now, I personally, like you, I'm quite addicted to caffeine. Um, if tomorrow caffeine were treated like heroin and people were put into prison for buying it and if it was cost you, you know, a thousand dollars an ounce to get coffee, I mean I would be in huge trouble. I would probably wind up in prison for my caffeine habit, you know? <laughs> sure. Um yeah, and uh I I'm I'm drinking a cup of coffee as we speak. Um but I um I'm Point where I'm gonna start looking at my um, caffeine intake um, because it would be probably the last uh, 
substance to um, to go in my life. Um, but I I have been aware of consequences recently, and um, I think that I'm I'm gonna uh, start to take a look at that. Now, with nicotine, on the other hand, uh, personally, I've told this story many times. I moved from being a heavily addicted cigarette smoker to now I'm a recreational cigar smoker. I have like one a week, and you don't need to inhale. Actually, you get sick if you inhale a cigar. So uh, the, the health uh, consequence is quite, the health risk is quite minimal. So, you know, I really use the harm reduction on nicotine, but abstinence for cigarettes. Sure. Um, yeah, and I, I think that the psychological consequences of drug use are um, much more complicated, and um, the long-term effects of, of psychological consequences are um, are, are overlooked. I think. Um, you know, with alcohol use, it's easy to see that uh, it causes, um, so there's research, and I'm just thinking about college students because we were talking about them before, there's research that shows binge drinking is associated with the three V's on college campus words that begin with V. Vandalism, violence, and vomit, right? So everyone mm -hmm. in college has gone to bathrooms and the bathroom stall door has been torn off the hinges or the mirror cracked. Um, and violence is, fair, is fairly clear. One in four women in college has some sort of um, uh, sexual assault or advance, um, unwanted, and um, and vomit is, is health-related. You know, that's clear. But what's less clear is what the reliance on the substance uh, may do. So if on Monday you get a horrible grade and Tuesday you find out that your parents are going to split up and Wednesday uh, they, your parents tell you they're not going to send you the money that they thought they'd send you and Thursday the, the girl that you thought uh, liked you is now dating your, your good friend. Well, Friday is say time to party and forget about everything or, or maybe it's a crappy day and you want to drown your sorrows, and maybe you'll do that, and it'll be fun, and you know. But but uh, what about the what's what's uh, missed in not being able to find a friend and talk about what's been going on in in your life? And um, you know, many people who will go out drinking or um, or smoking or whatever, you know, can do that too, but. But sometimes, without seeing it, a substance can take the role of that more natural human instinct um, to connect and to be intimate and to share about what's going on in our lives. And um, I think sometimes people don't realize that they're um, they're not keeping that foremost and that they're not working on building those relationships that help us get through life. For me, um, that's the underlying factor in AA. I don't believe AA is for everyone. I, I, I don't think the spiritual aspect or the steps is what's curative. I think it's, uh, as they say, the therapeutic value of one alcoholic helping another. And so AA is not necessary for everyone as long as, and with a lot of my 
patients, as long as they find people that they can spend time with who are a positive influence and they can connect to them, have fun with them, and, and do things that are meaningful and purposeful, then, then they're really able to, to make and maintain the changes that, um, that are helpful to them. So what do you recommend for the people that uh, object to AA, that say, I'm not going to go there, I've tried that, that that just backfired on me? Yes. Um, well, uh, so first I I push them a little bit, always trying not to push them so much that, um, that they're going to have a reaction to me and uh, not come back, but I want to challenge them a little bit because a lot of times, you know, what we might label resistance to AA is actually um, some sort of transference, you know, to use some more psychodynamic terms. Um, you know, so I don't want to go to AA because those people are, you know, going to make me do something and they're telling me what to do. Well, um, that might be an opportunity in a therapy to explore, you know, one's reaction to authority. Perhaps someone had a, had a father who, who was harsh or a mother who um, didn't ever negotiate and just set the rules and... Um, or an educational system that, that was uh, dogmatic, and um, that actually might have more to do with the reaction to AA than, you know, than what someone is saying is the reaction. Um, and that could be the same thing with God or with spirituality. Um, sometimes people say, "Oh my God, those people are so depressed. Going to meetings just makes me want to drink more." Well, there's uh, two things going on there. It may be that we're tapping into someone's depression and that they really need to talk about what's being stirred up in their own uh, feelings about their own depression. Um, likewise, um, the idea of feeling like you want to drink when you go to meetings, that's not necessarily a bad thing. There's a lot of research that does systematic desensitization and exposure to the things that make us anxious. And if you go and you want to drink, but you don't drink, and you talk about it instead, uh, every time you want to drink, you're in a situation like that, you're going to want to drink less because you made it through that time. Um, so that's that's one piece of that. Um, but then, then uh, as a therapist, I'll back off and say, well, you know, what else can you do? And how important are social supports? Where can you find some good connections? Um, and today, with the use of the internet. Um, that's been really, really helpful. Uh, there's a website, meetup.com, mm -hmm. where people can enter in the distance. You know, they're willing to travel, what their hobbies are, soccer, running club, clay, board games for shy people, um, dating, you know, new restaurants, cheese making, whatever it is. And all of a sudden, there are all these new people that you can meet and go and do those things with. And uh, that's been huge. Yeah, we use Meetup actually for our Hams group in Brooklyn. Um, but I want to ask you, uh, since we're on this topic, uh, what about some of the uh, other alternative groups to AA, like AA, like Smart Recovery, SOS, Life Ring, Women's for Sobriety? Are there live meetings available where you are, and uh, what do you think about sending people to online groups? Um, I think it's uh, it's great. Um, many people are not not used to that, and um, sometimes the accountability is not quite there. Um, and um, but but I think the advantage of those groups are that there are people there who are struggling with the same you know same or similar thing that you know someone comes into therapy for drug or alcohol issues is struggling with. 
So, um, and that's really important. So I think that that's why those groups um, are great. I, I think that that um, again the the thing that's most curative is is a is a real honest connection to other people, and oftentimes that involves talking about what someone's been through, what the challenges are, um, reaching out, asking for help. Um, I have a group myself that's a harm reduction group, but it's a real mix. There's some people who go to AA, and then there's some people who have uh, stopped their opiate use but are still smoking weed every day, um, and some people who are just trying to figure out how to stick to the National Institute of Health's recommendation that men have no more than four a day, no more than 14 a week, and women have no more than three a day, no more than seven a week, and they're just trying to maintain it. And I find nothing wrong with with merging those approaches and putting people in the group because the value of the group is, is the honest connection and, and recognizing the differences that the members have um, and also, you know, joining in the similarities uh, that they have. Well, that sounds like a really good approach to me. Um, you know, my personal thing, you know, my background, I was brought up as a fundamentalist Christian, uh, creationist, extremely dogmatic. You know, I was, by age 13, reading Darwin and becoming an evolutionist and an atheist and all that. Um, I saw that the, the identical structure in AA is being very dogmatic, uh, religious, and saying, you know, uh, if it, you know things like the twelve steps are merely suggestion, but anyone who fails to work the twelve steps signs their own death warrant, and you know that was just ah. the other thing that just got me was being told that alcohol was powerful and I was powerless, and that in the end I drank more than I ever had in my life when I was going to AA, and I just had to leave because I was going to die of alcohol withdrawal if I stuck around. Yeah. Um. The you know the number one reason why people don't go to treatment for drug and alcohol use on treatment of any sort is the the fear of being labeled um, that that they somehow have learned that they're going to need to admit that they're alcoholic and that probably comes from from AA and how AA has infused the treatment realm and um, and people don't want to admit that and and oddly enough. In AA, that's the you know it's the first step is is admitting that you're alcoholic, and when you introduce yourself, you have to say, you know, I'm Jeremy, I'm an alcoholic, um, and so there 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 is a lot of power in that in that label, um, and it seems that it can be so detrimental in scaring people from treatment, but then oddly enough, people in AA say that that there's something empowering about admitting powerlessness. And I think, though, they will say that the, um, you know, that, that you're powerless over alcohol once you, when you drink. But if you don't drink, um, you know, then essentially you're not powerless. You, you may be powerless over wanting to drink. It, it, it gets to be semantics, and it sounds like a, like a loophole. Um, Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I, and I think one thing is that there there really are a lot of different AA groups and meetings and and people and um, and there there are people who who really practice um, 
agnosticism and atheism. Well, I mean, I don't know. Those are things you practice so much, um, you know. But but uh, the, there's room for people to to not be religious or you know or God based and um, spirituality for a lot of people is more to do with, with human connection and um, you know going back to the social support you know so um, feeling that you're, you're powerless I, I can't I can't do this myself I try to do to recover on my own so in that way I'm powerless but a higher power might be me and Ken having a conversation together um, you know, we happen both to be people um, who struggled with addiction, but we're, we're getting together here for this show, and it's helping, it helps me. It may help you, it may help listeners. Um, so, so I can't make changes by myself with my addictive tendencies, but if I reach out to somebody else or some, some group or therapist, then we can make these changes together. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, I just think some people might find, say, the smart recovery approach to be more appealing where uh, we're going to teach you how to stop drinking and these are the tools and you practice them and uh, you go to these smart groups for support when you when you need it and then but eventually you're going to learn how to stop and then, you know, you will basically graduate from the group if you want to. Well, people can stick around smart forever if they want to, but it's not required. So I think some people would find that approach, you know, much more compatible with themselves personally. Right. And, and you know, there's a lot of people, I'm one of them, I don't go to AA anymore. So I, I think that there may be some similarities in AA these days um, that a lot of people go and phase out. Um, unfortunately, they'll get. They may get a lot of flack from from the members, and and I think that that's that's sad. But I also know a lot of people who phase out of AA, don't go to meetings anymore, and maintain sobriety. Um, much harder to you know, go back to controlled drinking and uh, not have that support. So you know, in that sense, smart recovery would be a much better option. Hmm. Well, smart's actually not controlled drinking. Smart is ab- total abstinence, you know. Right, right. Um, right, so um, for people who choose to to stop drinking, once, they, once they've stopped drinking, um, they may not need to do much more work um, on, on their recovery. Would you agree? Um, well, we uh, Leon Kaskatas was uh, with us a couple of weeks ago, and she gave us some interesting numbers. And she saw about a one third of people stuck with AA long time, long term. One third went to a few meetings, uh, went for a certain period of time, and then they quit drinking completely. But they also quit going to meetings and were successful at abstaining. And then there was another third that were uh, just that were dropouts. Um, but interestingly, 20% of the dropouts uh, quit on their own too. Yeah, and there, the you probably know the statistics for the percentage of people who get clean and sober, or at least who improve their um, their drinking habits without any sort of treatment at all, AA and psychotherapy. 
Well, yeah, the NISARC study, um, they just published, uh, 2009, they published that article, Alcoholism Isn't What It Used to Be. And we found over half of people recovered on their own. Which is very encouraging. So it, it took, it was a 20 year time period, though, so it took a lot of people a long time to recover on their own. And that's what it seems to me that treatment and therapy needs to be about. You know, there is this spontaneous remission, this natural recovery that takes place, and treatment and therapy should be, you know, speeding that up and supporting that and encouraging that. That's my whole point of view about uh, therapy. That's a nice view. Um, I, uh, I've not heard it stated like that, that there is a uh, a point at which it may be it may be spontaneous, you know, recovery. Um, that that someone is sort you know sort of destined, or there's a timeline, or you know some uh, genetic innate response mechanism to say, okay, enough is enough. Um, and then and then how can therapists um, facilitate that? Uh, that's a nice way of looking at it. I mean, my thought is that therapy, the goal of therapy, is not not to need a therapist anymore and to be able to copy the patterns of relating and be able to do what you do in the, in the therapy setting um, with one's friends or, or family, um, perhaps by oneself, but I, I think that addiction tends to happen in the, in the context of um, social relationships. Um, I think you know most people find that when they drink or drug, they say, oh, it helps me relax around people, or it helps me be the life of the party. I met somebody that I didn't think that I would have met otherwise. Um, you know, I was able to joke. Um, or someone drinks or drugs often to deal with the fact that they don't feel connected to others. They don't feel um, that they have people who are close in their lives. And um, so in either case, it happens in that social context. So, so I think when people make changes in, in their drug or alcohol use that they necessarily need to improve and connect with others in their lives. Mm-hmm. Now, there's some interesting research uh, in the neurochemistry uh, that's out there that says, you know, young people have a neurochemistry that makes them take a lot of high-risk behaviors. They get engage in a lot of high-risk behaviors, take a lot of risk. As you get older, as you get more mature, uh, your brain chemistry changes, and those chemicals uh, lead you to want to seek safety more, want to avoid risk more, and that seems to be a really major factor in what they talk about as maturing out of an addiction. You don't want to be involved in that crazy stuff anymore that you did when you were 16 years old. No, I mean I think uh, the research you're referring to is in the in the frontal cortex, the uh, the myelin sheath that surrounds neurons is not developed until age 25. And we used to think that um, you know kids sort of stopped maturing at eight, at 18 or so, but it's really not until 25. And then you're introduced to substances well before that, so now you're adding um, substances you know to the mix, and the and the neurons uh, aren't. Um, fully communicating well, and, and the frontal cortex especially is responsible for judgment. You know, is this a good idea? You know, sh- you know should I leapfrog this uh, parking meter you know, after I've had 12 drinks? And, um, um, yeah, that's a story from, from, from my past. When I was 22, I leapfrogged the parking meter and didn't make it. 
imagine where I hit it and then how I flipped over and landed on my head. Um, and many, many worse consequences. But in, I think that I like evolutionary explanations, too. I think that we, we actually, there's something uh, adaptive about being a risk taker when you're younger. You know, we might need those young people to be on the edge and to be mavericks and uh, pariahs and, and explore things and, and, and be innovators and take some risks. Um, you know, maybe we need people who are under 25 to go to war and uh, fight battles and not think about pulling the trigger. Just pull the trigger. We need, we need that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm being a little uh, facetious, but um, it may be adaptive as a society and that's you know, and that's that's why young people are, are doing that. And and then as you get older, you, you know, start to think more carefully, be carefully about consequences. And we all tend to mellow. Um, and I'm sure we'll find that the brain continues to mature in very meaningful ways. You know, after 25, um, too. Because I think what you're talking about is often um, something that's it happens after 25. Yeah, we were right, talking... A lot of the people that, that come into our practice come, come much later because their their habits, drug use habits, have, have uh, exacerbated and, you know, become worse, and they tend to be older. Yeah, we were talking a few weeks ago um, to Mark Lewis, who is a, a neuroscientist, and he was talking about additional changes that take place in the neurochemistry um, way past the age 25. It continues to, you know, move away from risk taking towards more caution in many ways. Yeah, not surprising. Well, we got a few minutes left here. So, uh, what would you like to uh, leave us with? Um. Well, that's a good question. Uh, well, I really appreciate the work that you do and um, and your show. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, I want people to know that help is available, and that um, most therapists um, get into the field because they truly want to help people and help people be themselves. And I, I think that harm reduction has changed the way people do therapy, um, you know, from Marlatt and Gordon's work to uh, Miller and Rolnick and motivational interviewing. Um, and um, most therapists out there these days are, are really collaborative more and more. And that's what young people in schools for social work, psychology, um, and, and even the more traditionally based certified counselor um, field, um, even they are learning a lot of these approaches. So I'm, I'm really hopeful about that. And, you know, a good start is get a good therapist who's knowledgeable about um, substance abuse. It doesn't necessarily need to be an addiction counselor because they sometimes the mental health field as well. But get a good mental health therapist who has knowledge about substance abuse um, and shop around um, for that as well. Okay, I'd like to thank you very much for being our guest tonight, uh, this afternoon, Jeremy Frank. 
Oh, you're welcome. Uh, this was a lot of fun. And everyone, come back next week. Uh, we will have a representative from the Baltimore Students Harm Reduction Coalition. And we'll be talking about harm reduction on campus and harm reduction in Baltimore. So I will see you all then at the usual time. And everyone, good, uh, good afternoon. <laughs>